Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. So my guest today on the Nashville Sounding Board is Jeff Obafemi Carr, candidate for mayor of Nashville. Jeff Carr is an alum of Tennessee State University, where he was student body president and the leader of a campaign to improve the facilities there. Uh, he has worked as an actor and is the founder of the Infinity Fellowship Interfaith Gathering. And most recently, Jeff served as a senior advisor of the No Tax for Tracks campaign against the Let's Move Nashville Transit Plan. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Is there anything you want to add to that intro? No, man. It was pretty, uh, it was pretty much covered every every nook and cranny. I mean, there's still a little uh, subtlety in between all of those spaces and journeys. But yeah, that, that pretty much summed it up for for all intents and purposes. And uh, let's get started with kind of a, a fun question I like to ask people. What is one thing that people don't know about your background? There have been profiles in uh, the Tennessean, a lot of coverage. What's one thing people don't know? One thing that people don't know is that I, at 22 years old, right after we had done the sit-in at TSU in 1990, I started a newspaper called The Third Eye, and I ran it for 11 years. People talk about that. But it's kind of like um, the innards of it that are, that are interesting. So there were uh, there was Jerry Ingram and Mark Jackson and myself, and then we had a small staff that was primarily my brother Greg, and a good friend of mine who was Anthony. He was uh, going to go to law school, and all three of us said we was going to go out there and have high impact on the world. So Greg is now the chair of Afro American Studies at. Howard University and just a widely recognized scholar in African-American history and studies. Uh, and Anthony Jones, who was at the time took on the nickname Van, uh, went on to become Van Jones. And he's Van Jones. It's on CNN. So in our own ways, we used to sit down and talk about how we were going to make good in the world and be community guys. And it's nice to look around and see almost 30 years later that everybody made good on the promises from a little bitty office that was half the size of my campaign office here on Jefferson Street. But we were idealistic kids who said that we felt we could do anything we wanted to in the world to make a difference. And we we went forward and did it. So that's a little known tidbit that all of those kind of minds were sitting there uh, putting together the newspapers twice a month and putting them in their cars and disseminating them throughout the uh, community. Wow. Yeah, that's something I didn't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's a question I'm sure you get a lot. Uh, why do you spell your name in lowercase? Great. That's that's like a great, great, great question. Once I stood on, uh, sat on a roof, I had a theater company, and I raised $30,000 for scholarships for kids who were in a youth violence program, and I was up there for a little over a week. And people, the first question I asked was, where do you use the bathroom? Not what are you going to do with the money? So the, now the question is, why do you spell your name in lowercase? And let's discuss it. There, um, there was a time when I was a younger artist and going through a period where I was frustrated at not getting traction in life. Um, I was younger. I'd been divorced. I was a single father. And there was a period of depression that was coming on me. And I was laying on the floor in my own snot and tears one night in my house my first house. And I was like, God, why me? Why me? And there was this revelation that the world is so much bigger than you. And there's so many people, especially in your family, who have gotten through so many things that are much more devastating than you could ever deal with. You got a mind, you got a gift. Your granddaddy was a sharecropper who had 11 kids who had to raise them when his wife died. So it really made me feel 
that I was putting myself before larger creation. So I just had a revelation that the world's so much larger than me, and I started spelling my name in lowercase from that moment to just remind me of that. And it just became a, a part of everything that I did, and I joined the ranks of people like Katie Lang and E.E. E. Cummings and Dream Hampton and Bell Hooks, uh, people who do it, and it's not a big deal. So it's just something that reminds me of that. Sure. And uh, is that how it will appear on the ballot? It will absolutely not appear like that on the ballot because on the ballot, everybody's name is appears in all caps. They make you do that. <laughs> they make you do it to fit in, uh, and they don't even do upper and lower cases. So for people who say, well, you know, it's kind of weird to make everybody lowercase your name, I don't. I just tell people that's how I prefer, and if they choose not to, they choose not to. But it, on one end, it's it's great to hear in the media people say, well, you got to lowercase his name. But, hey, in the voting booth, everybody's got to be uppercased, everything. So uh, grammatically speaking, it's going to be wrong there, but it'll be the right choice for people if they choose Jeff or Baphomet Carr. And going back to your experience at TSU, what is one thing that you learned from your experiences during the sit-in campaign, during the hunger strike there? You obviously met with the governor what did you learn from that experience in terms of leadership? I learned to never give up and that good leaders follow people and they learn from people. And I also learned that when you are looking out for people, people look out for you. That's the biggest lesson I learned. I became good friends with Ned Ray McWhorter, the uh, former governor, who was a great guy, high school education, but really big personality. Uh, my brother was SGA president as well a few years before me, and we both established a relationship with Ned. We shook hands to end this uh, this sit-in on a deal that basically made him say, we know that we have not done what is right for TSU, but if you give us a chance to do this, we're going to release this money, and we're going to spend money to build this campus. Before that deal, I was sitting in a stairwell with the vice president of the SGA, AJ. We call him AJ. His name was Anthony Johnson. And we were sitting in the stairwell. I hadn't eaten at that point about seven days. And it was late at night. And there was so much pressure from everybody. There were people of the Board of Regents calling us. There were administrators calling us. And everybody was saying, you got to quit this. You got to stop this. You got to give this up. And it was a moment of crisis for me because I looked out through the stairwell in the glass and I was talking to AJ and I said, man, this thing is going kind of long. It's going crazy. I said, do you think we led these kids like us? Do you think we led them wrong? And he was like, man, I don't know. You know we were just sitting there in our own misery because all these kids are out there walking around and people in the center of the floor of the downtown campus, all lethargic. We had just gotten back from the hospital. Two kids had been hospitalized. And we were just in that moment of, man, did we mess up? And uh, Chandra Wynn, never forget that. She was a freshman. She came through the door. She said, what are y'all doing over here? I said, well, 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 we're just relaxing. We're just sitting here. She said, well, I just wanted to tell you all something. I said, what? Um, I never did anything important in my life. And... Basically, she said that this was the most inspiring thing that she's ever done. And to stand up and to see this kind of unity inspired her to go forth and do her best in the world. And her life was changed forever. So, you know, we're like sucking it up well into tears, you know. Okay, yeah. thank you. So she gives us a hug. She leaves, man. And we were just like, ah, new life, you know, doesn't chest bumping. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. So it was an example for me 
uh, to know a living example that if you put yourself out there for the people, then the people will basically give you crowd serve moments to let you know that they're going to get you. And I've carried it with me in my entire life. And it's what's led me to the age of 50 in understanding that uh, that's how it works. Life is a symbiotic relationship between uh, people who are not necessarily leaders and followers, but people who just take the lead at certain times when they need to, to make sure that everybody's needs are advanced. And going into this campaign and your desire to, to run for mayor, your campaign manager is uh, Jacola Lane, a well-known community advocate for such issues as bail reform. And your treasurer is former mayoral candidate in 2015, David Fox, who is known as a conservative. Mm-hmm. What are we to make of this unusual left-right coalition? And are you attempting to, in a sense, recreate the anti-transit plan campaign? Um, two questions on that. Number one, I think that's the most awesome thing that you can ever, ever see when you see people who may appear to be politically on opposite sides of the spectrum coming together. That's important for me. It's important for Nashville. I built uh, the tiny, the first tiny home village in Nashville. I built a, an educational center that'll be opening up soon for young people. I built a performing arts academy with the Amon Ra Theater that for nine years operated successfully. 100% of our kids graduated from high school and entered college. In each one of those circumstances, in each one of those situations, I did it by putting together people who politically may not have agreed with each other, racially may have been what we consider different in our social construct of race, different orientations, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different religions, but people who put that aside to work toward a common goal. So I wanted to make sure that with this campaign, I was modeling the same thing because that's the best practice that I know we can invoke to move Nashville forward. We can't be partisan as a city and have a war with the state, but even as a, as a government, we can't put in, be in a place where we don't listen to each other. Uh, we, I've been in rooms where people are fighting politically and they're saying 50 different things. And I learned that the way to bring them together is to hear the two or three things that they share in common and then work on those things, leave everything else off the table. So we have a team that is committed toward the priorities that we have as a mayoral administration and a potential mayoral uh, administration that we have to advance forward. And you only do that by modeling what you want Nashville to be. Uh, the recreation of the transit campaign, uh, I think the transit the, um, the transit tax referendum campaign, that I look at it as, it was an awesome moment because I was surrounded by different people. So there were so many people in Nashville who were from different backgrounds. There were conservative Republicans. There were uh, liberal Democrats. There were black people, white people, uh, gay, straight. Everybody who came together and said, we all agree that this may not be the best plan and that we want a way forward. And it was a great moment of unity for me to see that reflected in the vote with 64, 65 percent of Nashville saying, you know what, we may not get along on every other thing, but on this particular thing, we're going to say no for this. Give us more. So I think that's the best way that we can advance Nashville forward. And that's to adopt that unified approach to solving the problems that we face as a city. You've mentioned that you want this to be a bipartisan support for your candidacy, and Nashville is itself a nonpartisan race. Um, I've looked at your voting record, and it shows you've always voted in the Democratic primary. Sure, You do have the support of David Fox and some other conservatives, along with a lot of liberals as well. Sure. 
Um, do you share David Fox's support for charter schools and for privatizing certain government functions? And what is a voter to make of this sort of bipartisan support? Where are you along that mix? Sure. I think there are good ideas, and I think that there are ideas that should be explored. Uh, and as an independent who, in a state where they don't allow you to register independent, uh, you have to vote in generals, and, and if you before you get to generals, you have to vote in primaries. So they line you up with a mostly Democratic uh, ticket. You look at my record, you'll see that uh, some Democrats would might say, well, he wavers a little bit on down-the-ticket items, and that's because, yeah, I'm going to listen and I'm going to look at issues. I voted for David in the last mayoral election. It's nonpartisan, but... We all know that the last mayoral election was made very partisan, and that was really ugly, and it was unfortunate. I blame both parties for doing that. I particularly blame the Democrats for making it into that when it shouldn't have been. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to move forward and have David on the team to show that there can be healing where people can work together in a political environment and make this more of a city that comes together. So not a blue rain, not a red rain, but as I say, a purple rain and have that opportunity to, to put that energy forth. Uh, when we talk about charter schools, charter schools are an option. They are public schools. Uh, I've known some great examples of public schools that excel. I know some great examples of charter schools that excel. Uh, I'm not anti-charter. I think they're good options for people. Uh, I am pro choice with people making an opportunity, getting an opportunity to have their kids educated. It's also noteworthy that I've considered what to do with my children in public education because charters may be an option for them along the way. And, and you have four kids I have currently four in kids public schools. In public schools. I think it's I think it's awesome. I look at it and say I think it's awesome, not odd, but I think it's awesome that we have a chance to have a mayor whose kids are actually in public schools. And so I'm an advocate for public education. And there are some unique challenges that public schools face. One of them is, depending on where you live, the quality of education goes up or down. You're more like you could be likely to possibly be heading to jail or possibly heading to Harvard, depending on the neighborhood you live in. And that's not right. Uh, so there are people who are told you have to keep your child in this particular school. And there are parents who say, well, charters may be an option. I want to do that. And they're vilified and they're made to feel bad about themselves, but they don't have the choice to pull their kids out of the public schools and put them in a private school like many people do, uh, or people who can't live in a space that is close to the high performing schools or they lucky they luck up enough to get into a magnet school or an academic school and they can say hey my kids are okay but your kids need to stay there and stay in the low performing school because I'm an advocate for education and I don't want charter schools i think the real mix uh, that's going to be effective is looking at what we can do with successful charters replicating that model keeping the budgets the same to say, if we can do this in a charter environment, we can do this with regular public schools. Charters are not going to dominate national education anytime soon. We have uh, several schools. We've got over 80,000 students. We've got, uh, I think at last count, 73 elementary schools, 33 middle schools, 25 high schools, 18 charters, and then eight specialty schools. So I wouldn't move toward having a, a mostly charter school system, but I think that we can learn stuff from charters and charters can learn things from uh, public schools as well. Uh, in terms of finance, what I share with David is a conservative approach to finances and being responsible and finding a way to make sure that we deliver on services with the minimum impact 
in terms of waste to taxpayers. And that's something that we'll, we'll definitely be looking at, especially when we're in the budget crisis that we find ourselves in now. Sticking with schools for a moment, what are your biggest concerns and also your biggest ideas for improving Metro schools? I don't want to sound funny, but, and I don't want to sound hilarious, but sometimes the truth is hilarity. The, Sometimes I go to eat school at my kids' schools. I go to eat lunch, and it reminds me of the experience that I have when I go to visit people in the penitentiary. Um, the food, the treatment of the kids, the hurting the kids around, there's an environment that is vastly different from school to school, and that's just for food alone. We also know that the culture of a school can also be defined by the principal. Uh, but it also is defined by the relationship of the principal to the board and then the board to the superintendent. So we have to make sure that there is um, there's more alignment with a culture of excellence that goes from the top with the school board all the way down to the classroom where the kids actually are and that every decision that is made is about the success of the students. That comes into play when we talk about budgeting. Uh, that's something that back in David's campaign he had to deal with, with the privatization of the janitors and the choice between the employees versus the kids. Those are issues that are going to come up from time to time. If there are effective ways that we can uh, build true public partnerships with par with private agencies that can be successful for Metro, that's something we have to look at. I'm not going to tell somebody that I'm not going to look at that. If so, I become an ideologue and that puts me in a place where I can't listen to people. As a mayor, as a leader, as an administrator, you have to be able to listen to all ideas, put in place the best practices and not go in with a predetermined agenda that is so rigid that it can't be flexible. So I think equalizing the education so that if you pick up and move from one neighborhood, say Green Hills, uh, into southeast Nashville, you don't have to get a cardiac arrest uh, when you think about where your kids are going to go to school. You should be able to throw a rock, hit a metro school, and get uh, a, an equal education, and that's a goal for us to work for. You've mentioned the impact different neighborhoods and where people live can have on uh, the educational experience of their children. Can you talk a little bit about the neighborhood that you grew up in and your experiences with displacement and your vision for affordable housing in the city? Sure. I grew up in uh, South Nashville. Uh, we used to call it Out South and call, uh, near Lafayette is the other part of South. But I grew up Out South and since then it went from just sunny side to being divided up into smaller communities. So now the technical area where I at, well, grew up is called 12 South. And then there's Woodland and Waverly, and then there's 8th Avenue, and then there's Belmont Hillsboro. And so all of those small neighborhoods now that are that are highly gentrified. Show you how gentrified it is. My dad had a sixth grade education. My mom had a 10th grade education. Working class family. Uh, my uncle bought a house on Paris Avenue. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nice neighborhood. You should come on over. My dad bought the house there. And they were two of the first black families to move in, 1968. Uh, the seller didn't want to sell the house. He tried to renege. And my dad contacted an attorney who looked out for him, pretty much pro bono, uh, important attorney. His name was Z. Alexander Luby. Uh, and the, the famous guy came over to my dad's house and said, you know, let me talk, talk to some people. And he went, went to court and got my dad's house uh, for him. They paid a whopping six thousand dollars 
for that house, 19, uh, 1968. We grew up in the house, born and raised there. Great neighborhood. Eventually, of course, it became just overwhelmingly African-American, but at some point it was very mixed. Had great experiences, rode my bike from there all through Edge Hill, all the way over to 21st. We'd go get comic books at The Great Escape, which is over by Division Street. We'd walk down to the Nashville Sounds game and get the ice cream and the helmets and catch the balls over the fence. It was just a great, great area to grow up in. Uh, Now it's changed a lot. So my mom still has her house there. She's 89. And we go and and we've renovated her house so she doesn't have to leave. She gets a lot of offers uh, to move. Every year we make sure she doesn't get any anxiety because we get her property tax freeze because the property taxes have sailed. They tore down uh, one of our neighbors, the works houses, uh, works house. They tore that down a few few years ago. Actually, they sold it twice uh, to different owners. And then the last owner bought it and tore it down and they built out to the very edges of the property on a quarter of an acre. They built this high rise house and they sold it for over $900,000. So if you think about the price from 6,000 to $900,000 in the neighborhood, there, there's their concerns there. And depending on the time of day, she doesn't go out because there are people who double park and block her driveway and bachelorette parties and people running through the neighborhood and knocking her off the sidewalk to get to all of the bars and restaurants on 12th Avenue. So there's got to be a way for us to be able to make the city grow and and allow the neighborhoods to grow, but in a way that preserves everyone. So for affordable housing, we have to look at defining it beyond the area median income because so many people don't make that. If you're an hourly wage worker, you're not making a living wage, your rent is is more than 30% of your income, you are cost burden and you're at risk of being homeless. So when we talk about affordable housing, we have to define affordability by income. And then we have to find ways to empower people who still own properties to learn how to equitably partner with people who want to do smart development so that they can maintain equity in the product, um, in the projects that they build and they don't have to leave the neighborhood. And so I've got some ideas on how we can sit down and do that to teach people how to participate throughout. You want to build four tall and skinnies on a property. What's wrong with having the property owner get a space in that, that they own free and clear and that they they don't have to leave the neighborhood, but they can stay in a space that's affordable for them. And you were the leader of that tiny homes initiative, building uh, tiny homes for the homeless. And, uh, Going back to the transit campaign for a moment, you were essentially the face of the campaign, the public face, and I saw many people on social media criticize and dismiss you as just being a paid actor, playing another part in your acting career. Sure. What is your reaction to that? Um, My reaction is very clear. When somebody says that, it doesn't say anything about me, per se, Uh, because if anybody looks at me, they say, this guy published a newspaper for 11 years He's written 12 plays. He's written three books. He has an essay in a college textbook. Uh, he has 100 commentaries on national public radio. Uh, he's uh, spoken and lectured at colleges around the country. Uh, that's what people who know me say. So that's what my career says about me. For people who would say that I was a paid spokesperson or a mouthpiece, what that says is what they're thinking and what they feel. That says Jeff Carr is not smart. Jeff Carr is not accomplished. Jeff Carr is not a thinker. 
Jeff Carr can't be figuring out ways to strategize to do this. Jeff Carr can't be doing the research. He just can't be that smart. He can't be that bright. He can't be that intelligent. He can't be equal. There has to be a white guy behind the scenes because we've never seen a black guy that's smart. So he must be a puppet. I think it's pretty awful to put yourself out there like that and to show people what your mind really is thinking. So can you describe for us how you got involved with the No Tax for Tracks campaign? Sure. Um, I was out talking to a few people and different events and having conversation and the issue of transit came up and I was immediately, I was adamantly against it because I had gone over the plan uh, at the end of the year, January, we were talking about it, it was first presented and I said, it doesn't sound consistent with what Mayor Barry had, had said during her campaign. She was like, she didn't want to do any major rail-based projects, but this seemed to be a flip-flop. And I said, something is wrong with this. And so I was against it and having conversations with different people, including David. Uh, and David said, there's a group of people who are organizing to to get against this. And I said, well, what can I do? He said, well, let's sit down and talk to him. So I met Jeff Eller, uh, one of the lead guys with No Tax. And he said, here's what we're, we're going to do. We're going to put together a coalition. We're going to go out here and fight this. And I said, well, let me know if you'd like me involved in any way. And we sat down and talked and partnered. And the first thing I said was, now, don't do the spokesman thing because that's kind of like puppeteering. So I'm going to say some things if I'm involved that will probably piss you off and you'll probably disagree with. But unless I have a say in how things are going to be advanced and and, and as long as we're going to do it in a in a forthcoming fact-based way and not get into ad hominem attacks, then I'd love to partner with you to do that. And that's where it started. So we started working together uh, back the 1st of February. And from there, we we went through tons of reading and research and forums and debates and discussions. Uh, but it was all a good journey that was about getting people to actually read the plan. And for the first month, that's all I did. I carried around a 55 pages that I had printed out and it ate all the ink in my laser jet, but I wanted to make sure I had a copy of that for people like my mom who had a flip phone and didn't understand what a transit plan was. She doesn't know. You could tell her what a PDF is. She doesn't know what a PDF is. Most people out there don't. So when I was traveling around, I was just asking people to read the plan and I was talking people through the plan. And when we started getting people kicking back on that and saying, well, you know, you're being negative. I'm saying I'm being negative by asking people to read your plan and telling them to go to your website. And that's when I realized something deeper was going on. There was something else wrong because anytime you don't want people to read something, but you want them to vote for it, that doesn't jive in my book. It's like trying to get people to sign a contract without reading the fine print. So the fine print was a 55 page plan. Uh, it was flawed. And people started seeing that, and that's when the tide began to turn, and people said, we want something, but we don't want this particular plan. So turning back to this campaign for a moment, how did the city end up in this financial situation with a $34 million revenue shortfall? And in concrete terms, how would you write the ship? How, is, how would the city be better under your leadership than under any of the other 12 candidates? 
Uh, for 30 years, I've been at the head of organizations. It was the Third Eye, if it was Amon Ra Theater, if it's now Infinity Fellowship. And one of the things that you do is you set the tone for the organization. Uh, you set the budget for the organization. Uh, in a nonprofit structure, you deal with the board. You deal with revenues. You deal with um, costs. You deal with uh, um, expenses. Uh, and you deal with balancing that budget. You deal with personnel. These are things that you deal with. And in terms of leadership, if you've never been in that position, then you're lost in translation. You can take the skills of budgeting and administrative and executive decision making and translate them anywhere. I can take a kid who has become an awesome dope dealer on the street. I can put him in a corporate program at 18 and he's going to be a CEO in two years or less. Those skills translate. Uh, and although this isn't the dope game per se <laughs> on that level, being an executive director, being a founder, being a person who sets a tone, I've come to learn certain things. One of the things that you learn when you're working with complexities of budgeting, when you have record revenue, but you have a budget shortfall, that's a question of priorities. That means that somebody is not spending the money right. That means that they're spending money in a wrong direction. For the first few budgets that, let's just say, Carl Dean did, uh, he came in and he did something that was fiscally responsible. He looked at the budgets that were available. He said to each department head, and I think we've got, what, about 59 departments in Metro. We said, he said, tell me what your budget would look like with a 3% reduction, with a 5% reduction, with a 10% reduction. He picked some spaces in the middle, cut those things down, still provided the services necessary. And what happens years later? We have a surplus, and we have a surplus rainy day fund, and things are looking good. So that's what happens because the initial budget cut or the initial budget framing is a rock that's in a pond, but it also has a ripple effect that continues down the line. The ripple effect of that kind of thinking was a surplus. Now, when you go in, as Mayor Barry did a few years ago, and said, well, you know, what else do you need? You need 3% more, 5% more, 10% more. Uh, when you look at your staff and you say, well, I'm going to increase the size of the mayor's staff by 60% over any other mayor that's been before me. And honestly speaking, I, I, I love office spaces and I love work environments, but $1.3 million to renovate the mayor's office, that's a pretty big expenditure. Uh, and when you look at that as an executive director, you start saying, this tells you where the priority is. So when you when you have that mentality operating for a couple of years, then what happens? Things explode and you start dipping into your reserves. And now we're at a place where we're dipping into our reserves to fund things like a general hospital uh, and other city services and not being able to fund promises that we made, including those COLA raises and taking care of Metro employees. So one of the tangible things that I'm going to do is have a thorough examination of the budget from the inside out, decide what we have as basic services that we have to keep and enhance, make sure that we keep the promises that we need to keep to keep our employees happy and then not waste money or replicate services. It's irresponsible. And this is how I know when you hear people come in and I hear this on a campaign trail, I've heard a million, well, a million times, but I've heard it quite a few times. Some candidates are wanting to take advantage of the situation that we're in. So they say things that are very populist oriented. I'm going to throw the buns out. I'm going to cut everything we don't need. I'm going to fire all of these people. I'm going to make sure we do that. That tells me one thing, that you've never run an organization before. 
That's what you have to be mindful for when you're searching for a mayor here. You have to look at who has had to make those tough executive decisions. And when you say, I'm just going to rip out things wholesale, you're like the guy who went to Starbucks and had a bad experience and said, if I were, if I was manager, I'd fire everybody. And then they make a manager. He goes and he fires everybody. And then a busload of people show up and he didn't even know how to make coffee. So that's an irresponsible way of saying, I'm going to go in there and take care of it. You've not done management before. So responsible management is a philosophy. Priority is a philosophy. And we have to make sure that we are funding our basic services, our employees, because it creates an environment where it trickles down to the average everyday person who has to receive these experiences and have to receive these services. And you want people to come when you call them, when you need them. And we most importantly have to make sure that public schools are going to be funded and that they're not struggling. So you mentioned the cost of living adjustment. That was a promise made under Megan Berry uh, that is not in Mayor Bradley's proposed budget. And obviously Mayor Bradley was in a tough spot coming in uh, right before budget season. And we found out about this uh, financial situation how would your budget proposal, if you were in Mayor Briley's position now, how would your budget proposal differ from Mayor Briley's, and would you have maintained the cost of living adjustment? I would have found a way to maintain the cost of living adjustment simply because it's the right thing to do. And I've had employees before. I've had to have the, the unfortunate experience of having to fire people, um, hire people, move people to different places. It's not fun. Uh, it's necessary. You take responsibility for it for the sake of the larger organization. But um, the thing about that mayor seat, you have to be able to hear where people are. Uh, that's the importance of budget hearings. We won't get a chance to do this again for another year. But when I sit down, I'm going to give that same directive. How can we reduce this by 3%, 5%, 10%? I think it's a good model to use and say, how can we function that way? And then even before that, we're talking about possibly going in. If the city of Nashville raises up and says on May 24th, we're going to make Jeff Obafemi car mayor 50% plus one, 50% plus you, this person over on the corner decides I'm going to vote and they make a mayor. We have an opportunity to try to find where the money is. Uh, you don't get a chance to find it when you're just on the outside looking at the budget that's released because you're not sitting in the hearings. When you have a chance to call the department heads together and issue some directives, you can say with the political will that you have to, to have, here's what we're going to do. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to fulfill a promise. I say it's important to fulfill the promise and to find that money because when you are depending on a paycheck and a cost of living increase, that affects your retirement. It affects your ability to take vacations, to buy homes, to get a down payment on a car. And it might not seem much to somebody who is at the top. But when that is your way of living and you've built your family around that, it's a priority one. So we got to hunt and find that. And I think there are ways that you can look at. Uh, there are some spaces where we might have services being replicated. There might be some some pension management areas that we could look at and find ways to find that money. So currently, property taxes are at an all-time low level in Nashville, and Mayor Bradley has said when he took over, he made that commitment that we would not raise property taxes. That would not be the right move. Would you support raising property taxes? Um, not, not a, No, because, again, I know too many people that are already affected by that. And when you have something like property tax where we have – there has to be a revenue, revenue neutral model. You can't necessarily raise them for revenue – uh, that adjusts itself, but we're already dealing with property values skyrocketing. Uh, our church bought a pro property a, 
almost two years ago. And in one year, the assessment value went up 37%. Uh, the neighbors in that neighborhood were elderly and they were just frightened. I think we look at the cause and effect issue here. The reappraisals that people got, they had an opportunity to uh, review and to dispute and ask for reappraisals. And we saw that a lot of our corporate partners in Nashville uh, took advantage of that loophole and got a lot of money off what they owed in the property taxes. And so we have a budget shortfall largely because of that, not because of the property assessor herself, but because of the process. In the street, we used to say, don't hate the player, hate the game. So when people figure that out and they got teams of lawyers who can figure out the game, then that doesn't benefit the average everyday person. I think when we look at this process again, we have to slow the loopholes so that that property tax freeze, that property tax reappraisal, uh, those appeals work for the people who need them most. And that are those are people who are living in areas where the costs are skyrocketing and they can take advantage of that. But I think it's only fair to have our corporate partners play their part here, especially when we live in a state uh, that doesn't have an income tax, that is a low tax environment as it begins with. And that's how you begin to equalize it so it's fair for everyone. But I don't want to raise people's property taxes. Uh, I want to make sure that we find ways to be fiscally responsible first. One other question on the financial front. Do you have an opinion about the soccer deal that would uh, help bring a new MLS team to Nashville, including financing the stadium construction and then giving 10 acres away uh, to private developers at the fairgrounds? Um, sure. If you're going to give private developer, uh, uh, developers who are, are very wealthy uh, prime property in the city, uh, you should give that same uh, consideration to people who are trying to start businesses in Bordeaux. Uh, people who are in Donaldson, people who are in Bellevue, people who are in Hermitage, uh, people who want opportunities to work with the city, who want money, who want support, who want tax increment financing, who want tax credits. You should be able to do that for everyday people. I think it's a bad process. It's a bad practice to say we can give you the 10 acres, too. I mean, you finance a $275 million stadium with $255 million of bonds. Uh, you, that's a pretty good deal as it is for somebody who's going to bring a team here. I, I love soccer. My nephew is a soccer star in Texas. He might one day play for Nashville if he doesn't go international first. But I think, And I think it's good for the city. But I think there are other considerations that we have to have, including proximity. So the soccer deal is not totally done in terms of the stadium. There are people who are saying there are other possible options. Uh, and if you look at options, there are people I've talked to who say, hey, Metro Center might be a great place for this. And we owe 83, we own 83 acres of flat land that is accessible to the main road there already on one side of Metro Center. We own, I think, 150 plus acres on another side of Metro Center. And that area of town could use the boom and the development. We could give you more acreage if you want to help us uh, evolve that part of the city. So I think that although that's not a completely done deal, it's a consideration we have to make when we get on the inside to determine how to create a place that's fair and equitable to all. But I don't think land giveaways uh, are, that's not the way to advance our city forward because it creates, um, it creates an us versus them space. And for the person who's studying, who's struggling trying to get their foot in the door to create a business and to have development come in their side of town, that's a slap in the face to them because they feel they've been here all their lives trying to get footholds and somebody can come from the outside with another agency behind them like MLS and just get the red carpet rolled out for them. We want 
partners for Nashville. I'm a pro-business guy. I also am a pro-neighborhood guy. So as Nashville advances and expands, we have to find a way to make it equitable for everybody because I'm a Star Trek guy too, and the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, one uh, final question, at least from from my my list here. Would you support the formation of a community oversight board to investigate uh, community allegations of police misconduct? Sure. I think the the board that I'm going to support, the organization, the the institution that I will support is going to be the one that makes everybody uncomfortable. So people have asked me, are you going to do an oversight board? And I said, we're going to figure out a way to do some oversight. I said, no, here are the rules for the oversight board. And I said, absolutely not. If you're giving me the rules, you're you're tying my hands. You're basically putting a piece of duct tape over my mouth, strapping my hands behind my back, putting one issue on my forehead and telling me to go ahead and institute that at all costs. You can't run a city that way. You can't run an organization that way. If you want to do that, then you should run a candidate who's going to be a one issue candidate. But the true space of doing any community oversight is a space of compromise that makes both sides uncomfortable. So what does that mean? That means that I'm an African-American male. I've been profiled. I've been followed. I've been uh, harassed. I've been driving while black. Uh, I've had great stories in North Nashville, Murfreesboro Road. I know when the police are coming fishing. I know when not to when to drive with both hands on my uh, wheel. I know about all of that. I've lived it my life. I got two sons who are going to live that unless we make a change in this culture. I know that's real. I know it's necessary. You can't have law enforcement operating carte blanche, doing whatever they want, and then policing themselves. The flip side is I have a best friend who's a 20-year Chicago policeman, and he tells me stories every day that it end up with him saying, my, my greatest goal when I leave the house in the morning for my two boys is to come home at night. And there have been some crazy situations that he's been in that you would not understand unless you've been at the end of a barrel of a gun. And I have been 19 years old. I got robbed at gunpoint. That's not a nice feeling. So we also want to make sure that the police, however, are not just policing themselves so that they can allow this same culture of blue only, blue only, blue only at all costs to exist at the sacrifice of things that are really happening. And we know they're happening. We got data points that show that there's discrimination there. So what we have to do is bring both sides to the table and come up with a way for us to create oversight that is effective and binding, that makes everybody a little bit uncomfortable. When you made everybody uncomfortable, but they're okay with dealing with it, that means that you've struck a compromise that's fair and honest and represents all sides. So it sounds like you're you're for oversight yeah. of of the police, but you wouldn't be signing the petition or or voting for the charter amendment. Sure. What particular I issues? Petition. I signed a petition because I think it's a good thing to put before the voters. voters I think how choice. you work out the details is the most important space because you don't want to create a space where you know people where you have a tribunal for police and people feel like oh this is our opportunity to pay everybody back because then you're not able to look at something fair and clear. And you can't create a trap. You can't continue a system that allows people to say, listen, I don't care. All you have to do is go in there, chief, and say, I fear for my life and we're going to clear you. That doesn't work either. So we know what we're doing is not working. So insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So we have to do something different. Now I'd like to give you the opportunity to to close out with your final pitch for why people should vote for Jeff Carr for mayor. 
Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I, you should vote for Jeff Carr for mayor because if you go to Bellmead, if you go to Bordeaux, if you go to White's Creek area, if you go to Maplewood area, you go to Green Hills, go to South Nashville, wherever you are, you ask anybody about the work that I've done uh, and they know me, they're going to tell you one thing. Uh, Carr is not going to tell you what you want to hear. He's going to tell you the truth. And he's going to be honest and he's going to be consistent. He's not going to be one guy in one neighborhood and another guy in another. He doesn't make decisions based on focus groups and what sounds good. He makes decisions on the best practices. So for what I'm looking at for the mayor's office is the reality of it. People talk about lofty goals. Lofty goals get people lost. Reasonable goals and objectives that are measurable, that you can check off a list, that's what builds continuity and community and trust. So for me, I recognize we're talking about a term of just over a year. When you have just over a year, that's a fourth quarter because the term is four years. So we got fourth quarter going here. Instead of 100 days, first 100 days, I look at it and I say I got the first 25. Instead of a three-month transition period, we got three weeks. What can we accomplish in that year that people can check off and say we did it? Transit. We had a 12-month wait period before a transit plan. I'm the one candidate that has been on both sides of this issue for the last 12 months. I want to create an effective transit plan that is modular, that takes into account the best practices in the plan. The whole plan wasn't bad, only about 70%. But 30% of the plan was good. The cross-town routes. Oh, I love it. The bus improvements, the sidewalk improvements, the the intersections, the synchronization of lights, um, also putting money into fixing the potholes, the bridges, the roads, making sure that we address the bottlenecks, work in conjunction with the state. These are things that we can do through community engagement, leaning on the council people to deliver a transit plan within 12 months. Hold me accountable for that. The second thing I want to do is youth violence. Uh, we, I, I have addressed, again, youth violence successfully. I'm the only candidate that has created and run a successful deterrent program for youth violence, where we taught kids to act out on the stage instead of the street corner. So I'm going to create a position in the mayor's office. I'm going to cut the staff down a little bit to make the position. But we're going to call it the uh, Director of Youth Life and Prosperity because I don't give names to youth violence because that's one of the mistakes people make. You give names to something, it becomes a big thing. They're going to create a best practices manual that can be disseminated to organizations that are working with young people, including government programs that actually work. So no ideas. A brilliant, a brilliant idea is trumped by a practical application and a good practice. So we're going to do best practices. Third thing we're going to do, affordable housing. My approach to affordable housing is transdisciplinary. That means that it has to intersect with the transit plan as well. So our transit-oriented development has to take place in a modular way with affordable housing so that people can have live, work, and play spaces in different neighborhoods without having to always come downtown. That's a good way for us to build a relationship between developers and neighborhoods that is responsible, that is eco-friendly, and is exciting and gets people tied into that transit. And then the last thing I'll do is a full assessment of where we are with education and where we need our priorities to be. And for me to use the mayor's office, although we don't oversee schools, we fund them, to use the mayor's office to be a bully pulpit to reconcile some of the differences and and incongruities between the board, the superintendent, staff, the administration, and the actual teachers and the students. And I think there can be some alignment to create a culture of excellence where we're not losing our best people to neighboring and other school systems. Those are the four things that I'm running on. 
I'm running on them not because they're good ideas, but I'm running on them because I'm the candidate that has experience in those. I'm the candidate that has built housing, that has done youth violence, uh, that has worked this transit thing back and forth, uh, and that has kids in public schools. So I'm looking forward to moving the city forward, and the best way to move something forward is to ride with CAR. And uh, carfornashville.com is my website, and I hope people can get on board and make us make this happen. Ride with car is definitely a good hashtag. I like it. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having us, Ben. <laughs>